Um, hi everyone, and welcome to um, our book launch. People can start tripping. Um, I'm Alia, I'm the president of the Literature Society, and with me today is Ben Masters, author of The Lodges. Um, <laughs> and we're just going to be talking about it today. The books are actually available from the pages of Hackney store, those just outside in the um, reception. So Ben, if we can start off with maybe a little reading from the book. Sure. I'm just going to read a bit from pretty much the beginning, it's not the exact beginning, uh, so it doesn't really need any explaining. Uh, there's a group of students and they're in the pub at the beginning of their last night at university, um, and Elliot is the narrator, just dive straight in. The King's Arms is filled to spilling point. Students run rampant in red cheek naivety. With military front precision, the place bears its insistent demographics. Flowery thespians with lava for Yorick's skulls, meathead rugby players, cauliflower-eared, broccoli-beard, potato-reared, floundering in homoeroticism, red corduroy socialites with upturned collars and likewise noses, bohemian billies and bryonies, all scarves, hats and paisley skirts, indie sheeps and glam-gloss chicks, crushed velvet Tory boys feigning agedness, pub golfers and fancy-dressed bar crawlers, lads and ladettes, chows and chavettes, and the locals frowning at the whole motley spectacle. And then there's us, the noughties. We are quotidian calamities, unwitting lyricisms, veritable wordsworths out on the raz, lugging 20th century regret on our backs. How to convey the gang to you? Scott, Jack and Sanjay. Well, I like to buttonhole people, fasten them in nice and tight wherever I see fit and wait for the holes to sag. The buttons begin to shuffle and slide, impatient with the restriction, and then, the hold worn, no longer adequate, they break free. Excuse the ready exchange of metaphors, but as will be much says, there is no accuracy or fineness of suppression. If you hold one thing down, you hold the adjoining. My style is to hold everything down, as firmly as possible, and hope that only the most vigorous stuff rises. So, there's Jack, still my best mate, I think, and clown extraordinaire. Right now he's clenching a pint of Stella, and wearing a white-collared blue shirt, sleeves rolled, top three buttons undone, flashing a hairless chest with each flap of the loose collar his shortish brown cut moulded to aerodynamic specifications. Next to Jack is Scott, rocking a sprawl of Auburn without styling gel. He's private school, and they don't really do hair product like us stateys. Scott's drinking Cronenberg and chancing a pink shirt. He's bigger than the rest of us, being a college rower and rugby player, but he has the softer disposition, his various insecurities taking the edge off his muscles. Jack and I have affected occasional gym regimes ourselves, though we never actually change shape or size, clinging to our coat hanger frames and the self-assuring consolation that girls don't like big men. They don't. Muscle freaks them out. Still, we bought a barrel of protein shake at the start of our second year, hoping it might prove the key to the kind of rapid muscle development we felt we deserved. I was happy just mixing the potion in with a glass of milk after each workout, while Jack all out binged on the stuff, sprinkling it on his cornflakes, dipping crisps in chocolate bars, pouring it into his bedside glass of water, even layering it on top of his toothpaste. Naturally, our bodies stayed stubbornly put, no tightening of skin, no swell of veins, no progression in shirt size. Don't get me wrong, we're not runts or anything, just bothersomely average. And finally there's Sanjay, Stella, wearing his black Fred Perry with the white trimming. It's his lucky shirt, though I can't testify to the accuracy of the appellation. If it does attract the fairer sex, it's certainly not working its voodoo tonight. Our table is demonstrably cock-heavy. Sanjay has a little blinking tick going on. Every now and then he's able to shake it off, but as soon as you remind him, Hey Sanj, I haven't seen you do the blink in ages. It returns. Oh, for fuck's sake, wink wink. You want to know what I'm wearing too? Black, black jeans on the skinnier side of Slimfit and a blue and white check shirt. Stella. 
We're over at the quiz machine, slurping our student loans and tossing shrapnel into the slot. Gather round. Question. In Brideshead Revisited, what is the name of Sebastian's teddy bear? A. Paddington, B. Rupert, C. Aloysius, D. Baloo. Drink while you think. Come on, Elliot, you do English, says Jack. Did English? I'm finished now, ain't I? I protest. How the fuck should I know, anyway? Jack, a physicist, has always wondered what exactly it is that I do know, literature as an academic pursuit being entirely mysterious to him, and is looking at me doubtfully. The only social utility of my subject that he can make out is his occasional propensity for sparking progress on quiz machines, as well as select rounds of university challenge. But yeah, I add, it's definitely our wishes. English. I've served three years. Pulling all-nighters over weekly essays, arguing indefensible points with unswerving commitment, and defying all common sense with consistent ill-logic, I've completed my subject. English. I'm nearly fluent now, mate. But what next? Back to Wellingborough, I guess. I feel it closing in like an obscene room, pulling me into its suffocating folds. And then what? Fuck yeah, shouts Jack, selecting the correct answer. There goes my phone again. Lucy. Shall we yeah. Okay. Um, so, as you can probably tell, this book is based around a student's last night out at university. And, um, I mean, I think my first question is, on a personal basis, like, is it very... Is it, is it very part autobiographical or... Because I know you went to Oxford yourself and you studied there and a lot of the student experiences are very graphic and funny. Yeah. So did you use, do you draw from your own or uh, it's, all imagination? Yeah, it's about 316 feels autobiographical. It's, uh, <laughs> it's about. <laughs> I yeah, it's definitely semi autobiographical in terms yeah. of um, Elliot has a similar background to me. Mm -hmm. I studied yeah. English at Oxford. Yeah. But beyond that, I mean, there's anecdotal material. I think as a young writer, you anything that you hear or pluck from the air that's probably going to go into your novel, it's quite a magpie yeah. approach. But in terms of the stuff that actually happens, the plot and the action, um, it's, it's un unalloyed fiction, really. Okay, great. Um, and in, in that case, then, um, with, the, so with the guys, the characters of, of them, well, they're all very, I mean, they are very stereotypical. So was that, was that your intention, to go into these stereotypes that students will identify with? Like, the public school stereotype and the middle class. It wasn't so much that they. I, I mean, I hope a lot of most people don't identify with some of the some of the stereotypes. They might identify yeah, with the kind of the knowledge or the currency of those stereotypes. Yeah. But um, I think that the stereotype is a key part of the novel in terms of Eliot's perceptions. I mean, it's a first-person narrative, so we see everything from Eliot's perspective. And as the novel unfolds, hopefully, it becomes apparent that he's. Is very much in the mold of a traditional, unreliable narrator, yeah. and stere the stereotype is kind of a, a key stylistic way of getting that across. So Elliot arrives at university and tries to kind of graft stereotype onto onto his experience there, and he tries to put people into these neat little boxes. But by the end of the novel, I'm not going to give anything away. But uh, by the end of the novel, he um, kind of realizes that he doesn't really know any of the people around him, and he's got most people wrong, and that's kind of the the tragedy. Strong thought tragic, but that's kind of the, the, the sad note at the end. Um, so the stereotype it was hugely intentional, but um, I hope that some of the characters begin to undermine that, that use of stereotype and uh, point and at more points to kind of Elliot's limitations. I mean, it does add, truth. add hugely to the comedy of it. How well, there's, there's huge comedy. I mean, you can't take Elliot too seriously yeah. because he is so angled and extreme in his thinking. Obviously, there's a lot of comic potential to stereotype, and it's a very common thing to use. And, in terms of the, the genre of the book, it, it's a kind of um, social comic realism that shades into satire. So there is a kind of satirical element to it. I mean, it's, yeah. I wouldn't call it a satire, but there's this kind of satirizing moments. Mm -hmm. um, and stereotypes just ripe for, for that kind of treatment. 
Um, what about, um, because I mean, Elliot is an English student, so a large part of the book is these sort of heavy um, literary part segments of his life, like his tutorials at Oxford and his ways of thinking. <coughs> that was, did you want to, like, was it your intention to sort of make them stand out more from the rest of the satire in the book, or to actually thread them in and just have the reader? Some of them, some of them stand out. Um, I should say this. There's an author's night at the back, and this seems to have pissed a few people off a tree. Um, where I list a lot, there's a lot of references in this novel. Um, and I think it, partly it's inevitable because it's a novel about university yeah. and um, <coughs> the, the stuff that he studies is integral to his experience of that. Mm -hmm. But then also, it's a, it's a big part of how Elliot sees the world. He, um, you know, he arrives at university kind of way for the underread and has his head suddenly filled with all this highbrow knowledge. Mm -hmm. And a big part of the narrative, the fun that I had with writing the novel, yeah. was trying to figure out how that filters into everyday life and how Elliot almost at the beginning misappropriates a lot of his learning and uses it inappropriately. Um, that kind of turns up badly for him, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, he uses, he uses it in all, in all kinds of situations. And it, it also adds to the, the pomposity of his voice, which is the key. I mean, it's, it's quite a narcissistic narrator with highs and lows of kind of extreme self-confidence and self-deprecation. Yeah. And the literary references are a big part of that. I mean, the note at the back is meant to be, you have to kind of read the novel to kind of get it, I suppose, but it's quite an ironic juxtaposition with a lot of the stuff that actually goes on, the kind of the day-to-day yeah. -day experiences of the things he goes through. But then also, on a more serious level, I think that um, it's, as an author, you don't ever want to spell these things out too much, but part of the intention behind it was there's meant to be quite a close relationship between how Elliot uses lit, how he engages with literature and how he engages with the people around him. So there's, there's certain habits of kind of uh, misapprehension and error. Yeah. Um, and I wanted it to be quite ambiguous because early on in the novel, as you said, it's quite obvious that he's misusing these things sometimes and often here in quite um, salacious moments or whatever, he'll, he'll suddenly throw in a bit of high poetry, high brow poetry in it, and, and yeah. that's just kind of for, for easy laughs in some yeah, senses. Really but then also there, there, is a, there is a sense of, you know, the novel being a kind of a portrait of the artist as a young man, and he's kind of learning how to, to mould his materials. Mm -hmm. And at the end there's a bit where um, one of the last lines of the novel takes the, the last line of Great Expectations, the, the revised Great Expectations where Dickens says, um, I saw the shadows of uh, no parting when, when uh, Pip meets Estella at Santa's yeah. house and they walk off into the distance. Mm -hmm. And Elliot uses that and says, oh, I saw the shadows of many partings and, and slightly changes it when he looks at the people leaving university. And I want it to be ambiguous as to how far um, he's still just getting things wrong and actually he hasn't grown at all and he's going to, because he gets a lot of mm -hmm. characters wrong, the people in his life wrong, mm -hmm. and, and how far he's, he's kind of not actually progressed. And then also there's a sort of certain element of actually he's kind of maturing, finding his own voice now. He's deliberately being, he's, you know, he's being individualistic. He's starting to create his own voice. Yeah. And I wanted that it's to kind of be in the balance. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And would you say, like, for example, Dickens and stuff, do you, what are your personal influences and writers and stuff that have influenced to write, you, to write this book and include their works in it? I don't know, I think... I'm still, I don't know, I'm still discovering myself as a reader, I suppose. It's quite hard because, you know, yeah. I'm quite young and um, it's, yeah, but like, I think that when I wrote Naughties, um just as I, the summer that I finished university, yeah. and up to that point, I didn't, I mean, I was reading stuff on the side, I was reading a lot before I went to university, that was, you know, stuff that wasn't kind of on the syllabus, but then when I found out when I got to university, you're mainly, you don't really have time yeah. other than to read what you're being told to read. And so that kind of summer was the first summer I was really just starting to dip my toe into the things that I, want, I wanted to read. And was really kind of figuring out kind of stuff I liked. And I, I still am, I think it's, you know, it's quite a, a long process, I suppose. But I find that um, 
kind of gravitate towards, or I'm finding that like gravitate towards writers who can't resist the temptation to overwrite, and I really appreciate that. And yeah. I, I really like the writers who can't say no to the extra advert, to the extra adjective, to the extra clause, the extra simile, the extra image, whatever, um, and just kind of say to hell with it and, and go for that. So the writers I like are people like Martin Amis, yeah. um, Angela Carter, Anthony Burgess, Saul Bellow. They're all. They're all it can't ever come at the expense of a kind of precision, and it can't. I don't. If it's just lazy, then it's not good. And I'm sure there's a lot of uh, lazy writing in my in my own novel, but um, not intentionally so. But what people might interpret. <laughs> but um, but then like, I suppose you don't want to overthink when you're writing. You don't want to. I don't, when you when you write, do you write? As a, are you are you are you critically analysing your own work, or are you just a writer? What is um, it? Being an English student yourself, do you find yourself sort of overanalyzing every chapter that you write, or is it more straightforward? Just the weird thing is, is now having is, is when you come and start talking about it, start thinking about it. I start the the I'm doing a PhD at the moment, and um, the kind of the lit crit part of my brain starts working. I start theorizing my own novel, and I have to remind myself, I mean, you probably didn't think a lot of that when you were actually writing. I think that I think each novel, I'm probably I'm starting to learn this now. I'm just about to finish the first draft of my second novel, right. and. Um, I, I'm finding that it's a completely different experience to writing Naughties, and I think that each novel will be its own experience. But with Naughties, it was it was um, there was that kind of youthful pleasure in just pure craft and voice and style and and just following the voice. And I don't know if I was overly thinking what I was doing. I mean, you do critique it. Also, you write something during the day, and then you come back and you read it at night or whatever, and, and, and you're up all night with Codsworth thinking oh, this doesn't work. It's just awful. How am I going to change that? But I mean, I write everything longhand, and it just kind of flows. And when you're doing that, I think that you, you, you know, you just kind of get on with it because you, you know, you can play around with things. It'll still be there on the page, and you, you just, you, you don't write like you're not theorising it and writing alternative versions of things or anything like that. You just, you do just kind of get on with it. It's more when you stick it all together and you get to the end and you have the first draft on your computer. That's when you think, oh, yeah. All right. That's when the red pen comes up. What about? Um, I mean, Elliot himself is a character from. Lower middle up, middle class background coming into this elitist university and trying to fit in. It's all about his challenges. There, do you is that was it like your intention to paint a picture of like that struggle of a lower middle class student? And it's a big part. I mean, I think that everyone at university suddenly, not necessarily for the first time, but more intensely than ever, becomes aware of where they've come from and who they're. Because yeah, it's the first time you kind of you you. Come face to face with such a breadth of, of such a variety of different people with different backgrounds, um, and I do think there's a lot of that university. I mean, pe some people, you know, the people that are kind of sweating in the corner or crippled by a university, and they never seem to get over where what their background is and how they might not think they fit in. And then you get the other extreme where people really play upon it, and it kind of becomes part of their repertoire. You know, they know where they fit in, and they know what where other people might be perceived to fit in. And I mean, certainly my group of friends, it was always right for comic material to kind of, um, you know. We were, we were aware of the kind of the stereotypes that people might pick up on at Oxford and the, the state school public school divide, but I mean, it's more something that people mess around with than well, I think it's actually felt. But having said that, I don't know. Everyone said I think I probably did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder when I got to Oxford. I think <laughs> I can say it now. Um, but I'm sure everyone has their own their own chips to, yeah. to chisel in every morning and deal with. But yeah. all right, um, and in terms of. I mean, the, the interesting parts I found in the book were the, because um, I actually read them, <laughs> were the bits um, where, the, you know, Elliot's tutorials and actually the bits afterwards where he has the, the, the perhaps 
excessive sort of thought processes mm -hmm. where he t tries to tie in literary influences yeah. all throughout his life. I find that really interesting. Like, I mean, how do you you use all different styles and you use words, work, and stuff like that in in your writing? How did you do? You have a preference of the writing you use and the style, or was it just again in like terms of favorite? ones that I integrate into? Yeah, that. was it just your favourites that you really wanted to get out there and tie into the story? This is where I consult the controversial list. Uh, <laughs> it's well, a, a lot of it is just the standard stuff that's on an English undergraduate course. So you know, oh. there are there are a lot of dead white males in here. I mean, the whole list pretty much. Um, and that is reflective of a typical Oxford reading list, I suppose. But no, I mean, I wasn't, I don't think I've really included any that I don't like. Um, so just no. ones you're most familiar with? It's, uh, well, it's the kind of, um, I suppose a lot of them are ones that I would have dealt with in tutorials and, had, <coughs> and, and, and thought about. But um, a lot of the time it was more kind of mining the bookshelves for something that either was appropriate to a similar experience that Elliot was going through or the complete opposite something that Elliot could potentially misinterpret or uh, t take the wrong way and bend to, bend to his own needs. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, they're just, they're just kind of the classic authors that would be studying and thinking, of, thinking about at university. Did you think um, the description of Elliot's tutorials, are they very like, <coughs> similar to life? I mean, would you recommend to read, like, a student applying to Oxford to read this book? Oh god. Um, <laughs> I think that yeah, I think a student applying to Oxford shouldn't read anything that's about applying to Ox Oxford. It's just True. it's just the rest of like you see those books that you know this is how you get in and yeah. um, and it's, it's it's his own money making industry. But um, I'd say read a better novel that's set in Oxford. Which <laughs> I think is an example. There's, there are quite a few. Well, yeah, but that won't, that won't cheat. Yeah, you're going to turn up and start eating quail's eggs, but I think that, yeah. that doesn't happen a lot. But um, just thinking of like university novels, I don't know. I mean, think, I think most university novels are, they do tend to be comic. In a, yeah. I mean, there's Jewel by Philip Larkin, which is completely different, but I think if you read that, that would probably put you off going to university. Um, but they are all quite comic, and you know, when you're that age, you yeah. suddenly are becoming incredibly aware of just how fallible you are and how potentially pompous and uh, ridiculous you are about things. Uh, and that's a huge, again, that's a, a huge part of the novel. There's, um, you know, it's meant to be very ironic and tongue-in-cheek, and Elliot has this sense that that I think is perhaps universal to uh, being that age, yeah. of somehow being at the centre of the universe, and nothing's ever quite been like it is now. There's something, you know, exceptional about... Yeah, well, Elliot thinks that, but then the intention was to describe a very unexceptional experience mm -hmm. of, of the university. I mean, I think most people, whatever their age, could read this and go, oh, that hasn't changed, or mm -hmm. I, I remember that feeling. Um, but again, part of being that age is thinking that it is somehow exceptional. And again, I think a lot of the comedy comes, hopefully comes from Elliot thinking that, and mm -hmm. kind of that, that disjunction between his perceptions and what reality actually, actually is. And the title, again, the title's very tongue-in-cheek, Naughties. Elliot, there's these moments where Elliot tries to kind of grandstand and come up, it's full of like mock solemnity and he comes up with these big statements about like the zeitgeist and stuff. Um, and most of it, I mean, there are there are bits in it that I think that hopefully do ring true, but a lot of it is, is meant to be more a sign of Elliot trying to, in, sometimes in a touching way, trying to make his life somehow seem particularly significant and important, but in a way that isn't necessarily meant to be that convincing. Yeah. Um, so. It, I wouldn't want anyone reading and thinking this novel is going to sum up the noughties. I mean, it doesn't. Uh -huh. um, Elliot has a few stabs at it, and if anyone reads any of the books where he has a stab at it and thinks, well, I think that's true, I'll yeah. take it. But uh, sure. it's, not, it's not really the intention of it. Okay, right. Well, what about, for example, then, what about 
the book is written in first person, it's written from Eliot's perspective. Did you find that? Do you find it difficult to make the reader identify with Eliot as a character because he does have a lot of flaws and <laughs> no, I don't How do you make him more? I don't worry at all about uh, anyone identifying with it. Oh, you don't want. Well, <laughs> it's just not a directive. I don't think when I write, I don't think it's that important to identify okay. identify with the character. Um, I think that if you go in looking to identify the character, you're probably not going to read in a very uh, perceptive perceptive way. So I think that ultimately when people want to identify with the character, they almost want to find themselves in a novel. Yeah. And I just, like, it's just personal preference, but I think you go to novels to read things that, you don't necessarily write novels to but you go to the novels as a reader to find things that are different and other to yourself. And uh, that's kind of the challenge of reading. Now, of course, I think people will identify yourself. And if you are if you are kind of touching on some truths, and that will happen. People, I certainly want people to recognise things. So in terms of the kind of the grooves and the rhythms and the taste and all that of university experience, I was very keen to get as, you know tick off as many of the things. You know, there's the kebab van in there. There's the drunk, there's drunken night out, vomiting after yeah. a night out. All that kind of classic university stuff. And I want people to kind of read that and nod at that or cringe at it. Yeah. Um, but in terms of identifying with him as a character, like the, the Nabokov said, you don't identify the character, you should identify with the author. And I kind of go along with that. I think you can slightly qualify it and say you should identify with the star, which is in some ways saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, star does all the work, and the characters only exist in so far as they exist within the star and the player. <coughs> so, in terms of a first person narration, one of the challenges I found is that, um, you know, you, you can't. You can't faithfully render other characters when you're writing in the first person narration because they can only come at Eliot's estimation of estimation of them. And Eliot only exists insofar as he is the voice that I'm exploring and the style that I'm coming coming up with. So then the, the kind of the challenge is, and this isn't necessarily something that you theorise while you're writing it, but you realise it afterwards. The kind of the challenge of writing it is to find ways of exceeding Eliot's perceptions within his own perspective. So the star has to do a lot of work for you and has to kind of undermine and has to somehow know more about life and the other characters than Eliot actually does, even though it is still his voice. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, I think it's very common to these kind of coming of age novels to have a, a kind of unreliable narrator. Um, and Eliot is to some extent an unreliable narrator and that makes itself apparent in the way that the characters <coughs> Clearly, don't don't and shouldn't fit into the boxes that he tries to put them into, and he only realises this kind of at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose <coughs> in terms of style, uh, like your, I mean, it's your first novel. How <laughs> a stupid question, maybe, but I know this. I, I'm a student myself, and I, you know, meant to try writing. But like, how do you? A novel is a big step. How do you go about? And was it difficult? Like the entire process of. Well, did you have sort of moments where you didn't know where to go with the story and how do you go about it and have you grown from that? Well, it is difficult. I mean, just to go back, I always kind of knew I wanted to write. Even when I was a kid, I thought, oh, being an author would be great and I love books. I thought being an author would be great. But I didn't write anything until I wrote Naughties, uh 21, 22 years down the line. So I went to university thinking, oh, yeah, I'll be a writer. I'm doing shops with you. Know, you're going to be a writer. That's what you do, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. like that's the must be the most common job prospect when you finish an English degree. <laughs> uh, and then I kind of arrived at Oxford and realised I was surrounded by those people who thought they were going to be writers. And you hear these stories about like, so and so's got a potential publishing deal, and so they started as well. And I just felt strangled. Like, when I was an undergraduate, I didn't write anything. And I was strangled for two reasons. One, I think I, I suddenly realised I was surrounded by people who I was convinced were much uh, more able and confident than I was. And that was something I think I had to deal with quite a lot when I was an undergraduate. <coughs> and that only added to the chip on the, chip on the shoulder. <laughs> and then secondly, you're, you're strangled by the stuff you're reading. I mean, I was too busy reading to think about starting writing at, at that stage. And I think that's really vital because um, 
A, it's impossible to be a good writer unless you're a good reader. And B, you just don't know if you're being influenced by stuff unless you've read it. Because a lot of the stuff is out there in the ether and it's in, you know, other writers exist inside other writers that you might have read. And unless you start reading that stuff, and you can never finish it, like the more you read, the more underread you feel, um, then you can't make a reckoning with it. And you kind of, so I did have this sense of, right, I mean, it wasn't a pragmatic planned out and it wasn't pre-calculated, but I kind of thought, I've got to read all this stuff. I'm not ready to write. And also, as you're reading it, I mean, there's certain writers, this is how you learn the writers you love them. You read them and you think, well, how? what's the point in me writing? And there's yeah. lots of experiences of that when I was an undergrad. I think, well, what's the point? I can't. I can't. I'm not over here. Yeah, but you're never, you're never going to. You kind of yeah. learn it to accept that. Yeah. Um, but then, to answer your question, I kind of, at the end of my time at Oxford, I kind of knew, I, when I was finishing, I was thinking, well, what am I going to do? I'd better start writing that novel, I suppose. Uh, and I, I wrote a couple of short stories towards the end. I was doing a master's, so I was there for four years, and I started writing a couple of short stories um, towards the end just yeah. to flex some muscles and see if I could do it. Um, and so the mouse is running in there. It's one for the exit, it's very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. Stories and one of them, one of them kind of became the germ for the novel. I'll shout if it comes over. Oh <laughs> anyway, yeah, like one, of, one of the short stories became a, a germ for the for the novel, and then um, you just just started writing. I mean, when you write a first novel, you have no expectations of readers or anything like that, so there isn't any pressure. I mean, you're just challenging yourself, and there's a, there's a lot of kind of head bashing and getting frustrated with yourself and thinking, you know, I just can't pull it off. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing beyond that. There's no sense of, well, the publisher's not going to like this, or, okay. um, you know, readers aren't going to enjoy this. You just write what you want to write and how it, how it comes to you. Writing the second one is a different story, but when you write the first one, you know, it's kind of, you, you you're blissfully not that. Obviously, because it's been such a long time since you first wrote this, I mean, have you grown, like, your second novel, The Voice of It, must be completely different to this one, or do you find that there's many um, really similarities still in your style and your perceptions of well, the world? Well, it, it hasn't been, like, a on since I wrote it, but I'd say I've aged really, really, really well. But, uh, <laughs> um, I wrote it, so I finished writing it two years ago, um, the first draft, which I do think that when you're, so I wrote it when I was 22, and I think that at that age, Obviously, the learning curve is going to be steeper than it ever ever is, and I think I was outgrowing the novel as I was finishing the first draft. I mean, I got to the end of it and I parked it. I sent I sent it off to agents before you have to do. It's like the pragmatic side. I sent it off, yeah. and then I instantly started writing other stuff. And I bought quickly aborted three novels because I, I just wanted to try something completely different. <coughs> I was almost wanted to forget about novelties and wait. If someone said they liked it, I'd get back into it quickly. But I was kind of thinking I'd get on get on with the next thing. Um, so there has kind of been, so I bought these three other novels, but then eventually, kind of a year, just under a year after I finished the first draft of this, I discovered the one that was going to work, and I've been writing that since. Yeah. Um, and it is different, I mean, I think I'm quite subconsciously trying to do different s subject matter, but mm -hmm. I just think, 
it's, it's been it's not forced it's not pragmatic it's kind of something that the story naturally suggests itself and then it grows quite organically I mean I'm sure all writers do it differently but when I wrote I don't plan anything when I started Naughties and when I started the one I'm working on now I didn't have a clue where it went or what's going to happen yeah. and you discover the stuff as you write that, that's how I do it it's more about finding a groove finding a rhythm getting getting the, the kind of voice that you want and then things arise out of that yeah. and I, yeah I do think the stuff that I'm writing now is very different to Naughties I think there's um there's still a, a comic sensibility to it, but it's much darker. I think it's in service of different different things. Yeah. Um, but also, I, I don't know. I think that Naughties people will, no matter how much I kind of plead to the contrary, will relate it to me and think, well, this is him. Um, there's no danger of that with the second one. It's the, the main character is a middle-aged woman, so I've kind of <laughs> tried to get as far away from you know, those, those kind of things. But it's completely different, and it, it's very odd because um, as, you know, I finished writing the first draft of this two years ago and now it appears and I'm so proud that it's out but at the same time it feels very exposing having it there and people being able to critique it because it's almost like sending off a younger version of yourself out there and just hoping that it can, you can take care of yourself and I'm not sure you can but it's, you know, it's quite, quite nerve wracking but there you go Alright, well um, <laughs> what about when you were writing it um, do, were you thinking of your sort of prospective demographic? Because, I, I mean, as a student, I can identify with most of it, a lot yeah. of it. Um, were you, did, you, did you think that, when did you, I mean, did you question the possibility that adults might not, might, or like parents might be put off <laughs> with this book, don't want to send their children to university? Or like no, I don't think I was worrying about the health of the university <laughs> system. I, yeah. um, I, I honestly didn't think of demographics at all. I think you write what you want to, to write for yourself. You have to, I think. In some senses, you are quite selfish when you write. You, you trust that other people are going to like the same kind of things you like. But I think the moment you start aiming for an audience or trying to please people, I think that's anathema to, to a writer. Um, I'm sure it's how some writers think, but I will not necessarily be too confident that what they're writing is going to be particularly good. I don't know. But um, no, I was just writing what I wanted to write. Uh, it was more afterwards, when you finish a draft and you've got the thing there and you yeah. can start working with it, you do perhaps think, well, who's going to like this? But it doesn't It doesn't change any of the creative choices you make. Um, but I hope it appeals to people who aren't just that age. Because as I said, I think a lot of it is quite universal uh, to the universal experience of being that age. Yeah. And the kind of, especially in terms of the kind of the delusions of, of being young. And, yeah. the, you know, I think all people that age are unreliable narrators even outside outside of books. And it kind of, it, it lends it, <laughs> it, it, lend, it does, I think it does lend itself to literary treatment. Um, but I'm, yeah, I hope that people can still relate to that. Yeah. But I did actually, my, uh, my supervisor, Cambridge Robert McFarlane, uh, he, uh, he read it and the first thing he said to me, he emailed me and said, um, you've made me fear for my children's futures. Really? And I was, just like, I'm really sorry. I was like, you know more about university than I do. You know? But uh, yeah, I think that uh, hopefully it has broader appeals. Yeah. And um, I mean, did you enjoy your time at Oxford? <laughs> I mean, of course, the book is purely autobiographical, mm. but <laughs> I look back on it with huge nostalgia. But um, I think what I enjoyed was the academic side of it. I enjoyed the books. I enjoyed what I was reading. Yeah. I, I really loved my tutors and being around them and soaking all that stuff up. I was very fortunate with that. Um, I enjoyed university, but I do think that I don't know. So I suppose you know, this is where it gets all uh, crazy. <laughs> You know, I think university is quite a struggle for most people in some ways, and I think that when I look back, the fondness is for it's for the libraries, it's for the books, it's for the smell of coffee and the cafes, it's for all that stuff. I wasn't I wasn't involved in societies or sports teams or anything like that. I wasn't particularly interested in it. Um, I found that uh, just to keep up with the 
the kind of the learning side of it and pushing yourself with the academics. It's about <laughs> <laughs> Smoke-stained from times of yore, it's lumpy and tactile, like a golden brown resin caked over the top of dead insects, worm circles and cockroach grids, the patterns of nausea. The furniture is despairingly ad hoc, trippy tables and diverse races of chairs rubbing up against each other, tall and thin, short and fat, sunken and bony, flappy and slappy and all else in between. These death row seats, those unholy pews, don't so much nuzzle our buns as butt them away. It's proper muggy in here, says Jack, with an air of constraint, like he's trying to dispel an unacknowledged awkwardness. Is it? I concur. I've been dreading this night for three years now, all of which have been spent looking the other way, hoping it would never come. But it finally has, with its big hairy balls dangling in my terrified face. The end of my student career, <coughs> don't you dare laugh, as I pass into, no, can't say it, mustn't say it. Immediately to our right stands a harem of females, pretty, but clearly underage. It's easier to sneak in on busy nights like this. They're getting chatted up by some smarmy postgrads who should know better. Trouble is, they know they can't do any better, punching above their weight and below the law. <laughs> Been Pizza Express with the girls, yaps the head teenager, twirling her hair and fluttering her lids in response to some tiresome questions by numbers, administered by the overeducated elders. The front man of the latter is a gangly specimen of the D-field variety, a red-faced piece of lank, and he, piles the, and he plies the fairer sex with Smyrna Vices and WKDs. He's the type of bellend who'll order a half pint and pay for it by card. That's so cool, he says, an unfashionable turtleneck irritating his shaved sword jugular. The girls look like nervous peacocks, pastried over with gunky, gunky layers of makeup, debilitated by high heels and cling film miniskirts. We grimace at each other knowingly as these older hard-ons work their desperate black magic. We roll our eyes and make obscene gestures. Ella, Abby and Megan arrive and join us by the quiz machine. My skin prickles and I can feel the colour rising to my face. I can't even look at Jack. Evening ladies, chirps Abby with the habitual rising intonation, like she's asking a question. We grin sheepishly. Ever seen a sheep grin? And before you can shout that B. Joe Strummer, not D. Joe Bummer, was the frontman of the clash, they've been served. Fact, girls get served quicker than boys. They have a preternatural ability to make barm and bend to their every whim. Guzzle, guzzle, chug. Megan is pretty inconsequential as far as my narrative is concerned, but Abby and Ella deserve mentionable spots in the dramatist personae. Abby in the minor category, Ella in the major. 
Abby is all makeup and short skirt, the kind of girl who becomes increasingly fascinating in dark scenarios, supplemented by copious booze, while Ella is more inscrutable and weighty of soul. Ella's got her big night purple dress on and the matching heels to boot, which further compounds the sense of occasion. Our very last night, it's hard to believe. Ella gives me a loaded look, just a glance, yes, but rammed with so much history and heartbreak. The minute glisten in the corner of her left eye is enough to spark a personal revolt. A girl bearing a picture of pims on her head squeezes past, granting me a second's relief. If only I had the words and colours to paint the visionary dreariness of my feelings for Ella. But I don't. They are unknown to me. She means everything, and sometimes everything is too much. Everything overwhelms and confuses, and what I need right now is distinction. There is such a crowding of thoughts, such an excess of emotions jostling inside of me, scrambling to get out. If only I had the words. I dart my eyes away and sip my beer. I realise that I've got to face up to it all, but it still messes with me. And yes, I realise that now is the time to grow up there. Whether or not I have the skills to do this is wide open. I feel like a puppy, poised and tense, watching the leaves flutter in the breeze as he learns the physics of the mysterious universe around him. I know what the root of all this turmoil is, though. It's the one thing I know for sure. I am unbearably aware of what I'm running from. Michaelmas term of my second year, when I was, Photo! screams Abby, waving her flash new camera in the air, putting me off my stride. Everyone groans with fake wariness while sorting their hair and straightening their outfits. We're conceited little buggers. These will be on the internet tomorrow, mugshot.com, verifiable and incriminating. One, two, three, Abby counts down, wishing she was in the huddle too. A right cheesy one, I can tell, all pouts, grins and carefully cultivated embraces. We're pros at this stuff, the performance of a private life. Produced for all to have a gander, we make ourselves into mini-celebrities. We want everything to be known, and we want to be bitten for it. But that's just how it feels, right now, so early in the century. Let's see, let's see, we shout, inspecting our handiwork. We piss-take Sanjay's half-shut eyes. Megan secretly rues her roundness and takes a deep pang of dissatisfaction, suffering in silence. Minor characters, negotiating their self-loathing. Gross, take another, demands Ella. Now, we all know that people judge ensemble pieces entirely on their own performance, so it seems doubly ridiculous for Ella to complain when she is obviously the stunner of the cast. Nevertheless, she strolls over to a group of lads, tossing her wavy blonde hair over a bare shoulder, the hair and neck you yearn to touch and nuzzle, and asks one of them to do the honours. Sure. Ella is an effortless ingratiator. Any one of these fellas would have clambered to push her button, simplified and softened by the measured attention. I remember my own initial encounter. It was the first night of university, a cocktail event in college, when the real world was but a drowning murmur far off in the distance. Lecturers second years sharked about, scanning the fresh talent, mixing drips of coke and lemonade into plastic storage boxes filled with cheap vodka and Bacardi. Ella and I waded our separate ways through the frantic mob of small talkers. Hey, what's your name? Where are you from? What are you studying? What's your name again? <coughs> to scoop our cups in the toxic vats. She caught my eye. This stuff tastes of arse, I said. Mine's not that good, she said. I laughed. I was terrified. Here, try some, she said. Before passing the cup, she ventured an emboldened mouthful for herself, an elastic cord of saliva connecting the brim to her lips as she pulled away. Stretched tight, tight as the chest line on her panting red boob tube, the string snapped, pinging with abandon into the drink. I took the cup and pressed my mouth against the lip-glossed rim, swigging her while she smiled at me. The drink, more than any, and there have been many, went straight to my head. It went charging, leaving dizzying shockwaves in its wake. We're ready for photo take two. The girls turn on their pouts, they're hardwired for this shit. Jack points at Ella like a gimp, and Abby leans her head on my shoulder. I strategically fold my arms to make my biceps look bigger. Jeez. Right. <laughs> 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 so, um, I mean, that bit of the book, that's in the pub. 
And I remember that the book is written in three parts: the pub, then the bar, and the club. So that's uh, that's another sort of yeah, yeah. I mean that's part of the whole like satire build-up, isn't it? Of the whole book, how it's not. It has those serious bits in it, but then at the same time, it doesn't want to take itself too seriously. Yeah, but also, I think that the that kind of structural impulse is quite true to how Elliot see, would see it. Like he'd see it as quite a dramatic, a dramatic descent. But um, yeah. I think that it does ring true. I mean, the, it's such a there is a sense of capturing the, the standard student night out, and that is. I mean, it's not just the student; that is the standard night out. Go to a pub, go to a bar, go to a club. So, and um, I think that. I recall that suggested itself very early on when I was writing it. I think actually I had that idea before I had much down on paper. I just like picture the contents page and just thought that seems quite funny. Um, so I kind of went with it. But uh, yeah, I, I actually insisted there was a contents page with it because I wanted to to set it up um, straight away as being somehow somehow trying to give it give it more weight than it than it actually suggests. <laughs> there is a kebab van which yeah, comes at the end of the night, as it always should. If, if it comes at the beginning of the night, that's not good at all. But uh, yeah, there, there is a kebab van. There's a metaphorical meaning behind it. Yeah, well, I read it, but it ruined the entire It's a very good book. Right, yeah, well, I, I mean, I've, I think I've, I've covered everything I wanted to know, but um, I think this is the bit where we open it up to the general public. And do you have microphones? Yep. Or, yeah. If anyone wants to ask any questions, now would be your chance. You mentioned uh, you're insisting that there be a page at the beginning with pub, uh, bar, club. Uh, did you have any other, if I might say, altercations with your editor? In other words, oh, did, it wasn't an altercation. <laughs> <laughs> no, was, I mean, is, did the editor affect? the way the book eventually ended up in publication? Well, editing happens at various levels. It's not just that you have an editor. So my agent, who was, who was the first port of call, she's the person who first read it. I mean, when I sent it to an agent, my mum was the only person who read the novel, so there had been very little editorial work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my mum might hear a podcast. That wasn't a criticism of my mum. But, um, anyway, uh, so uh, my agent, more than anyone, I think she got it, and she liked the voice, and she liked the style, but she said, you need to go away and work on it, uh, develop the plot. So I think at first it was kind of, it was pure voice, and there wasn't really too much to keep a re reader's attention. So I went away and worked on that. Um, but that's a very collaborative experience, and obviously uh, you might disagree with things that, usually things that they want removing, and, but you, I mean, you always have five and say, so it's, it's more a, a, dis a healthy discussion. Um, and it's invaluable. I mean, the book improved a hundredfold after my agent had kind of had her hands on it. Um, and then you get an editor at the, at the publishing house. But I think at that point, I mean, uh, my agent had maybe works so hard at it and do a couple of drafts that it didn't, hopefully, didn't need too much editing. And that, and that was the experience. Um, my editor, he kind of he made really small local suggestions that again are invaluable and, and certainly helped tighten tighten the novel up. But not altercations. There was one bit, um, my favourite bit in the novel, uh, where <laughs> when I say it's my favourite bit and then explain it, it's not going to make anyone want to read it. But um, where Elliot's remembering his first night at university and he goes to the toilets in the nightclub and people might. Uh, in a lot of toilets and nightclubs, you have um, these toilet attendants 
who basically chant obscene things at you to get you to pay to wash your hands. But it's, I mean, I don't even want to say here, because uh, it's embarrassing. But uh, he, it's really obscene stuff. And I remember my editor getting to that and being like, now, Ben, you know, that, that's a bit much. And I was quite, I was quite flabbergasted that he thought I'd come up with it, because I mean, it's quite a, a, you know, offensive stuff. Uh, and once I explained to him that this was standard fare in nightclubs across the country, he said, oh no, keep it, keep it. But uh, once we'd drawn blood over that, it was plain, it was plain sailing. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of like funny language, there's a lot of crude language, there's one example, uh, some of the stuff you read is like irreverent, um, a lot of swearing and stuff. Uh, one example I can remember, like you describe your girlfriend calling you, it's like ringing not me, in... Not me. <laughs> oh sorry, yeah, yeah, the, the um, narrator, sorry Ben. Um, <laughs> The narrator, uh, you describe it, Elliot describes it, as clamping away at the testicles. I really like that bit. But later there's some, there's some really dark moments and some shocking moments. And so I wonder whether that was harder to write for you than like the funny, irreverent, you know, that, that other stuff. I think from uh, just a writing perspective, it's probably more challenging to write the serious stuff and to get it right. I think when you're being irreverent, it, it kind of frees you. There's a lot of room for, for manoeuvre. Um, and also, kind of the irreverence is the stuff that I perhaps know best. I mean, I did try and take as much colour from how people were around me and how I myself talk at university. And you know, there's a lot of colloquialisms you can pick, pick up on, and just things you can pluck from. I mean, like the guy in the toilet. I, I was going into toilets and clubs with my phone and writing down what he was saying. Even when I was drunk, and I was, this is gold. This is going on. Um, but like the serious stuff is, uh, of, you know, it's weight, weightier by its very nature. And it kind of demands, sometimes demands different treatment. Because I mean, Elliot sometimes still does treat serious stuff in perhaps in a reverent style, um, in a way that he shouldn't do. Uh, also, I think it takes. I mean, most of the serious stuff that happens in the novel didn't happen to me, so it takes more kind of powers of uh, imagination and empathy, I suppose, to, to do that stuff. So it's a, it's a greater challenge. But at the same time, I mean, I think that I don't want to come across something saying that comic writing is easy because it's. I'd say it's still that's the supreme challenge to get it right. It's just whether you, you get it right or not. So I have to admit I haven't read it, um, which I apologise for and I will, but um, it sounds like it's set um, over the course of one evening. Yes, um, I yeah, And I just yeah. wondered whether uh, you'd been uh, impacted by the one-day novel genre and things like Ulysses and Mrs. Dalloway, or whether that you were conscious of that as a writer, or whether it was just simply it cohered and um, was a nice way in. Um, I don't think it was self-consciously influenced by other novels that do that kind of one-day treatment. Um, I mean, it's awful admitting this. I haven't read Ulysses. I've read it now. But I, did, I haven't read Ulysses when I wrote Naughty. But I wrote that. Uh, I read it uh, over the last couple of years, so that's certainly didn't influence it. But I mean, I was aware of Mr. Dalloway. Um, but I mean, I, I think that as a, as a kind of a structural principle, it, it's just very um, generative. You can do so much with it, and it gives you a kind of uh, unity that you can play with. But I mean, you all, these things always have to be padded out with some kind of prior experience, some kind of, you know, whether it's a flat, whether it's flashbacks, or whether it's prolepsies, like pushing to the future, or whether it's kind of, why Wolf would do it, is having the different um, psychologies of different characters and being able to move between different characters' um, heads. And that kind of, that pads it out, and that gives it, it becomes more than just the one day. And in my novel, I mean, it's, it's more, in a cruder way than something like what Wolf would, I mean, that's just, that's like here, and, 
Nazis have done. Yeah. But uh, I went for the you know playing with the chronology and, how, and being able to fill it in with the history of the previous three years of his university experience. Um, so I mean, it does happen on one night, but there's a lot, a lot more chronologically and experientially that goes on. Yeah, I mean there are flashbacks as well. But I mean, again, I think that the, the, the sense that it's all about drinking uh, comes from that because so many of the memories are from other nights out and other parties and stuff. And people have said to me, like, how much do they drink in this novel? It can't be possible. <laughs> and I do think it gives a false sense of what they, what they actually do drink because it's flashback drinking as well. <laughs> a lot of drinking. <laughs> Any more questions? Yeah, there's one up here at the front. That's okay, we just shout. <laughs> Uh, well, following on from that comment about one day, actually, I wanted to ask if you read David Nichols and were you ever aware of kind of his success in the university novel sector? Was that ever a threat to you when you were writing? No, I, I haven't read one day, so it certainly wasn't. But um, I mean, as I said, when I wrote Naughties, I hadn't really read much of anything other than the classics that had been prescribed on my course. That was that was kind of my reading. So contemporary fiction is like a foreign continent to me. I don't, it still is, I don't read that much contemporary fiction. I still feel like I'm playing catch up with the with previous stuff. But um, So I wasn't uh, familiar with that novel. It didn't, I mean, just to broaden out to university novels in general, I think Lucky Jim I had read, and that was on my mind while I was writing it, that kind of, the sense of um, deflating sacred cows. Although I think that the cows aren't so sacred anymore, as I perhaps were when Kinsey Amos was writing that. Um, so that that was kind of on my mind. I, I like the the kind of the chip on the shoulder that Jim has in that. Um, and t uh, in terms of university novels, it's not really a university novel, but the Rachel Papers by Martin Amos, um, which is more a kind of a potential student, I suppose. It's just about to go off to university, but he thinks in a student's way. He over kind of overly over literalizes things um, in terms of making it literary. Uh, and that kind of that that heady mixture of, of scholarship and sex that seemed to me something that was kind of right for a comic treatment I wanted to, to have a, have a go at. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're probably two prime examples, two only examples of kind of novels that I'd read that weren't on my syllabus. <laughs> Maybe that's why they weren't into the novel. But. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember last time I read anything on the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Any more questions? Um, you might not like this, but <laughs> it's a bit job interviewish. But um, can we know what your PhD is about, and also whether you want to be um, like an academic novelist, like David Lodgy type person? Sorry. The question was, um, what my PhD on, and uh, would I like to do the dual academic writing thing, like David Lodge was the example. Um, my PhD, this is where I just crumble, when everyone asks me what my PhD is about, I turn into a student. Uh, my PhD is about um, literary style in the late 20th century novel, uh, particularly, and it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, I'm particularly interested in ideas of excess and stylistic excess, and what the ethical content and potential of that might be, so style and morality in the late, the late 20th century novel. Um, the academic career and being a writer, I mean, if that happens, that would be lovely. <laughs> it's a bit early to say at the moment. I mean, I'm halfway through my PhD, I'm just finishing writing my second novel, and you know, I, think, uh, I think I'll have to keep my options open with all that. But if I can have a kind of career like that, I wouldn't complain. <laughs> um, one right there, back, and then go back. Um, could you share a little experience about young writers being in the literary world? 
and how they're perceived and you know in terms of the way they think about their future yeah. um, what does you mean how you're perceived as a young writer within the literary world or how they're seen Okay, um, whilst well, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, but the literary world seems still seems to me a very mysterious place, and I don't know if I'm really in it as such. I mean, I can count on one finger how many writers I other writers I know. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, I don't know. I think that you have this sense of all the literary worlds in London. I don't live in London, so I don't particularly uh, feel that I'm a part of that. I do feel quite. Writing, for me, is a very solitary thing. I do it on my own. I don't really talk to anyone about it. Um, I mean, I read I mean, My agent doesn't even... She was trying to get it out of me last week. She was trying to extract it from me what my second novel's about. And I was just like, no, I can't, I can't say. Um, so I don't really know what goes on in the literary world. I mean, I suppose the literary world is reviews and the stuff you read in literary magazines and stuff like that. And... Again, I don't know if there's a consensus about attitudes towards young writers, but I think I'm learning quite quickly that they think, well, you better buck your ideas up and you know, you're lucky to be a young writer with a novel out. So uh, they, they certainly aren't going to go any easier on you for that. I think they'll probably, if anything, go a bit harder on you. Um, but then I think a lot of young, young people in the literature world, probably it's more common to be a books reviewer. I think there's a lot of uh, young book reviewers out there. And again, that's an experience I can't talk about because it's not, it's not really something I've, I've done. But um, I, I suppose as a young writer, you do have a sense of well, the literary world and establishment is the senior, the senior writers, and you know they're they're kind of like gods, and I'm just that you know down here playing around with mice. <laughs> I'm pretty sure mice don't come out with sound rushing this. Any more questions? Oh, the Uh, first of all, just a quick comment. I was kind of interested how many parallels there were between your novel and uh, Jeffrey Eugenides' recent novel this year about the English major at Brown University who's just graduating as well. So I, I found that kind of interesting. But I, I was just curious if there are any lessons you've learned from the, from the critical reception of your book, reviews. Like, how do you feel about that? And does that inform the creative process in your next novel? Or do you kind of try to consciously free yourself from those kind of influences? Um, I haven't read that novel, so I, I couldn't say what the Oh, so, sorry. I, I meant like book reviews you read about your own book. No, like, so the first part of your question was yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I haven't read that, so I couldn't comment. But um, I think that book reviews—they—it's a complete lie to say they don't affect you. It's horrible, but it does feel very exposing. I found. Um, again, I think part of that's to do with the fact that I maybe have quite an odd, strange relationship with this novel now. Not just because it's the, the first novel, but also I think that it's very much about a time and a place, and it's a young person's kind of novel in, in terms of the, the stuff that goes on. And you know, it's all you're always going to have that slight cringe when you think about it, but at the same time, extreme highs of like being proud about it and wanting to, to shout about it. Um, so it's odd having it out there and, and being critiqued, but I hope it doesn't influence what I write. If anything, I think it makes. I don't know, I think it's a very overwritten novel, and I don't think that necessarily goes down well with a lot of reviewers. Um, I think there's quite a privileged attitude towards kind of overly stylized novels. I think pe the, the general consensus in mainstream bookland, I think, is it seems to be that they favour the kind of more hard boiled and very exact um, novels get praised for their kind of terseness and their kind of. Um, very exact particularity, how they kind of capture that, that kind of feeling. And I think my kind of novel opens itself 
if you write with an ornate style, I think it opens itself up to a certain amount of looseness, and there's going to be kind of dud notes, and there's going to it's going to be flawed, and that's what I love about novels as a reader. And I think that a lot of the novels I like have very kind of divisive um, effects with critics, and often you know they are, some people love it, some people hate it. So um, I've experienced some of that in reviews, but I don't think it will change anything because I think you're kind of hardwired to be the writer you're going to be, and also you gravitate towards certain writers, and the kind of writers that I gravitate towards are that kind of writer, um, much better at it than I am. And it might be that I need to learn how to refine certain things to kind of aspire to them. But I mean, this, the second novel, the one that I've been working on, has been done in ignorance, really, uh, in innocence. No, I didn't have any readers, my book wasn't out when I was writing it. Um, I had a book deal for this book, so I knew that it potentially is going to be read by a publisher and by my agent. But um, I didn't have any readers at that point, and I hadn't had any reviews or anything like that. So I can't say how it's going to affect me with the next one. I think it probably does make you think a little bit more about um, what you're actually doing. It might make you more self-conscious, but in a way that is probably entirely unproductive, and I will try and block out as much as possible. But, uh, yeah. It probably is affecting me in all sorts of ways that I don't know or won't express. <laughs> I wanted to ask about the way your book looks and whether you had any input and you must, I assume you like it and I sort of noticed that the book's sort of big format and whether that was sort of, it must have been a conscious decision at some point. So. This is the exciting discussion about publishing uh, pragmatics. Uh, uh, this is just... It's what they call a trade paperback, so it's just becoming kind of standard fare now. It's basically replacing the hardback. Um, I think unless you're a big, a big established name, you're very unlikely to get published with a hardback. It's just part of, you know, everyone's having to cut back in all different facets of life, and that's the one way that the book world has to do it. I think that um, it's I also think it's probably harder to sell hardbacks. They're more, they're more expensive to make, but then also I think that shops are less willing to kind of bring them in. And um, I had not, I wanted hardback. I was like, please, can I have a hardback? And the publisher was like, it's just not, it's not going to happen. Um, so these, I mean, these, this, this thing's going to become more and more common, I imagine. Um, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but that's basically what it is. And it will then come out as an normal size paperback in a, in a year's time. But the cover, um, I mean, they show it to you. I didn't see any of the alternatives. They sent me this one and said, this is the cover. Uh, we really like it. What do you think? <laughs> they sort of framed it with we really like it. Um, and I did really like it. It was very odd at first because it was the first time that anyone had really had an imprint on the novel other than myself, uh, other than the editorial level, but you know, it was, I, you know, I saw it and obviously I had never pictured this cover before, so I, it was quite like a weird experience of thinking that's the face of my novel. Did you um, have an idea for Yeah, I did. Yeah, I knew what I wanted, but I had like various ideas in my head, but then I'm no artiste, so uh, <laughs> they were never, never going to happen. But um, yeah, I mean, it's quite, I'll leave it to other people to judge. <laughs> There's a outside in the bookstore. <laughs> um, any more questions? Uh, no? Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming along and uh, chatting to us despite all our little interruptions. And best of luck with your book and your second book coming out. And um, feel free to have a look at any of the copies of the books that we're offering outside. Um, I've been Aliona. <laughs> <laughs> this is Bad <Ben> Monsters. <laughs> um, thanks so much.